Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 2, where we'll begin today. Uh, If you are uh, newer to Connect Church, I want to say a very special welcome to you. Glad that you are here. I hope that you will feel immediately a part of our of our family. That is, that is what we are first and foremost, brothers and sisters together. Um, really, I guess, related to each other by the blood of Jesus. And so uh, we're just, just people trying to learn how to live and give him the most glory from our life. And so today we will continue to do that. I'm glad that you are here. And, uh, and I do hope that you will feel at home while you're, while you're here with us. Uh, and consider being a regular part of what God is doing uh, through Connect Church week, week to week. Uh, for those of you who are here because you were invited some, by someone, a uh, very special welcome to you. Glad that you are here. And uh, for those uh, of you who did not invite some this week, let me encourage you to, to be actively engaged in the world in such a way that you have people that you're inviting uh, to church with you. Each, each, I say all of that really because I, this is a little odd, and I don't think most churches do this, but as a part of our regular week-to-week process, we're, we're learning uh, to memorize Scripture. Uh, one of the things that I've learned even from a young age is that, that as you process through life, uh, the Holy Spirit will use different verses that you have put to your heart and, uh, and draw those out in different circumstances. And so it's important for us as Christians to, uh, to hide God's word in our heart so that we might not sin against him and to also give some tools to our, to our understanding in, in every circumstance. And so this week we've been uh, studying Proverbs chapter 12, verse 20, or at least I hope that's the one that we've been studying. And so let's take just a moment. And uh, for those of you who have hidden that word in your heart, uh, let's do that together, all right? Uh, I'll do it first because I sometimes, I, I sometimes pause at weird places uh, when I memorize scripture and then we'll do it together, all right? Uh, deceit is found in the heart of those who, uh, what is it? In the heart of those, is, was it just me this week? Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, great. However, conversely, What is it, honey? Those who plan peace have joy. That's my wife, by the way, if you're new here this morning. <laughs> and deceit is found. If you want to see someone who's devising evil, deceit is found in the heart of those who devise evil. And it's really interesting to me that, if, you know, that it's, it's joy versus evil, not that, that fluid middle that we try to li- think that we live in. So... Deceit is found in the heart of those who devise evil. But those who plan, this is intentional, those who plan peace have joy. So uh, let's all say that together. Not, not necessarily the first part of it, but the last part of it. Those who plan peace have joy. Repeat after me. Those who plan peace have joy. Let's say that again. Those who plan peace have joy. Let's do it one more time. Those who plan peace have joy. If you want joy, here's the formula. 
Those who plan peace, peace comes out of the planning. Uh, as you plan for peace in your life, in your conversations, in your relationships, in your finances, in your work life, as you are planning how to be a peacemaker in all circumstances, joy is what produces that. You have joy as you are planning peace. Joy comes out of hope, and hope comes out of faith. And, while, and because we can look back at what God is doing and we look forward to what God is doing, we are free to love in the meantime. And as we are free to love, we're looking for opportunities to plan peace and to bring other people onboarded to peace. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 20. A promise to those who plan peace have joy. If you want joy... You got to plan peace. So joy, let's talk about joy. That is what we're talking about. If there's a, a single word, I think, that describes what Christmas is all about, it's that, that little word, joy. In fact, several of our songs mention joy. Joy to the world, uh, the Lord has come. We already know that one, right? Uh, oh, come all ye faithful, what? Joyful and triumphant, Right? Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? Good Christian men, yes, of course, with heart and soul and voice. Isn't it interesting to rejoice with your heart and your soul and your voice? That's not a verse of Scripture, but it comes right out of Scripture. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Joy is heaven's promise. Joy is heaven's promise. But I wonder for those who have said yes to Jesus, if joy would be the marker of our life. I have found, and this is a little bit preachy, but I have found some Christians to be the most miserable people in the world. Hateful, opinionated, grumbling, complaining about every living thing. Nothing's every right. Everybody else is always wrong. You ever met people like that? Some people, it's like the longer they're a Christian, the worse they get. And yet that was the promise of the, the birth of Jesus was that, that, that these, these heavenly-minded people who are anticipating the birth of Jesus, it was joy to them. And their life was to be marked by the joy they could give away. So I wonder if we look at that first century bunch of first generation followers of Jesus, when they come into contact with, with him and they, and they say yes to him, they've been anticipating receiving the promise of God. Just about every one of them is in scripture. And there's no way we would have time to do a, a full view of this, but almost every one of them, the, the proof of the transformation was the rejoicing that they experienced that marked their life from then on. Luke chapter two, verses eight through 11. Yeah, so, so if you go through, as you're turning there, as you go through the New Testament, it's important to be able to see what brings people to a place of rejoicing. And by the way, I'm, I'm talk, we're going to talk about this a lot. And if this is your first Sunday, there's a lot of sermons that aren't like this one, okay, here week to week. Uh, this, is, this is really a, uh, I'm going to try to make it not be, but it's really a word study 
Because I feel like it's not as important for us as Christians to know how to turn the switch on. It's important to know how the process works. And so that's what I want us to do is to kind of reverse engineer joy so that we can understand when we are not experiencing joy, we can troubleshoot. And we know what went wrong. And so it's a little bit detailed and there's a, it's a little bit involved and there's going to be a lot of redundancy, but it's important for us to be able to troubleshoot joy so that when we're not experiencing it, we know where we, where we got off. And so in the same region, there were shepherds out in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with If you're not reading the Bible, you might think they're filled with joy, but they're not. They're filled with fear and not just any fear, great fear. This is the Greek word mega. It's where we get our word mega. So if you read that, you know, you just learned a lot of Greek right there. That's a really big word. (laughs) Pardon the pun. Mega. Actually, it's megos, but it's Great fear. Uh, That word means expansive. It doesn't mean heavy. It means expansive. It means spread out far and wide. So if if they're filled with great fear, it means that there really wasn't a part of themselves that was not affected by by the fear, paralyzed by it. Of course. I know it's easy for us to read the Bible. We see angels on every other page, but these people's lives didn't look like that. They didn't have angels in the sky speaking to them every day. So they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of mega joy. They are filled with mega fear. And the only thing that displaces mega fear is mega joy. That will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Listen, joy is not new to the Scripture in Luke chapter 2. Joy is not new to the angel's proclamation. In fact, you go back into the Old Testament and you will see joy everywhere. Joy is commanded almost from the first book of the Bible. Joy, rejoice, be joyful. This word is found in three or four different forms and found over 400 times. The the Jewish people, Judaism, the Israelites knew exactly what God intended for them to experience when they experienced the process of joy. And joy is a process. So last week we talked about joy is a choice that we make. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. But joy is also, it's super important. Joy is such a complicated word It is an emotion, it is a feeling that we feel, but it's not a turning on the light kind of feel. It comes from deeper than that, but it does require our intention. But joy is a verb. The most common use of the word joy in the Old Testament is the word shama, which means it's a verb. It means a jubilant celebration. It's the idea, and it's found in a multitude of ways of expression. But joy isn't something that they feel. Joy was something that they were commanded to do, to be joyful, to rejoice. It's an action word. 
But I wonder, when we think about now that Jesus is coming into the Old Testament, when Jesus is born, there's a natural division between the Old and the New Testament. But Jesus brings expansive joy. Believe it or not, Luke chapter 2, joy isn't a verb. Joy is a noun. In fact, what the angel said was, I bring you a great joy. He is the great joy. So the joy that they've been expressing has now culminated in a person. The promise that they were living into proclaiming the name of the Lord and singing psalms and praise and, and they were worshiping and the sacrificial system and all of their, their worship and, and things like this are all culminated now in a baby born in a manger. But I wonder how many of us feel joy in the morning. I want you to think about the process of even getting to church. And maybe your life, Donetta, my, my wife, uh, has been a single mom Sunday mornings our entire, almost our entire marriage. And so our, our life might be just a little bit, my process might be a little bit di different in getting here uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, we don't really typically argue much on Sunday morning. Uh, uh, hardly, hardly at all, in fact. <clears throat> But I wonder if maybe church is that one place that we find joy. And church is the easiest place that we should be able to find joy. And even then it's difficult because we don't always feel joyful. Now we come and sing songs about joy and God's presence and God's care and God's love. But it's not always easy to feel joyful. You know, it's, sometimes it's, it's hard to, uh, to manufacture the verb joy, to, to be commanded how we're going to respond and to act is quite difficult because we need to feel it first. And because they're more tangible and they're more understandable and they're easier to evaluate, we begin to focus on externals. So a lot of churches try to focus on the do's and the don'ts of faith. Do this, don't do that. Here's what you can do and what you can't do. And we have our list that we check. But we eliminate then many of the things that the Spirit wants to produce in us. These, this emotional transformation that God is working so this causes us to focus on issues and evidences rather than our emotions and the internals. So we begin to evaluate whether or not we love God or whether or not we're right with God by our legalistic check marks of what we have and what we have not done and what we allow and what we don't allow physically. So by way of a refresher, and for those of you who may not have heard it before, I want to just uh, really quickly bring this into light of some other things that God's been teaching me over the last couple of years. But God made us to be, to be physical bodies, to be mind, emotion, uh, what the Bible uses the word soul, and also to be spirit. And with Adam and Eve's sin and now our, our fallen nature, our spirits are, are dead. God promised that if Adam and Eve rebelled, that they would die and their spirits died. And then every, every child that was born to man from then on was born with Adam's fallen, dead spirit. But when we say yes to Jesus, we say yes to the resurrection of Jesus and the spirit of resurrection then renews or brings to life our, our, our spirits. And now we are alive spiritually. We are alive emotionally and we are alive physically. But I want you, this is a little bit complicated and some of you may appreciate it, some of you may not, right? So, uh, and that's okay, just be patient with me while I work through this. So, so naturally, before Christ, life flows into us one way. 
So I'm, I want you to think about three different silos that, that, we're, that I'm in. This is the flesh, this is the, the soul or the mind emotion, and this over here, this side is the spirit. So I'm not talking about the spirit, that part of me is cut off. So life flows into me only this direction. And so it becomes very circumstantial, the things that happen to me, the things that I can see, the things that I can process, the issues of life, I have to process them out physically. And what happens to me physically informs how I feel about it. And how I feel about it informs what I do next. And so these things are pretty much dependent upon each other to flow. And that what the scripture teaches us is that the things that flow into us from the regular life uh, our carnal life brings forth death. So even on my best day, if I'm dependent upon my circumstances to inform how I feel, I'm going to be pretty, pretty miserable. Does this make sense? Eventually, it's going to lead to death. But when God empowers my spirit to be active, so you, you know, some of you may know how this works. If, if you have a house with a big generator on it, you know, what happens is, you know, the power plant throws power out to your house, but when that stops, this generator kicks on, and this power, your, your breaker box, shifts off, right? It better. When it shifts off, that generator kicks up, and reverse flow back into your breaker box and can continue to, to give power to your home. That's very similar to what happens. This manual transfer switch is what it's called, right? Manual transfer switch. And what happens is, is that the, the power that's coming in stops, but there's another source of power that can begin to work. Now, this is a little bit silly, and I probably will regret it. But in Matthew chapter 1, it says to Joseph, that God's told to Joseph, his name shall be called, what? Emmanuel, which means, yeah. So this is a really bad preacher joke, and and. I'm really nervous about it. But we need Emmanuel transfer switch is what we need, right? So listen, I've learned a long time ago, you try to be funny, when you tell people you're scared, they'll laugh just out of pity, and that's good enough for me. So when Emmanuel, God with us, powers us, we get this backflow of power. One of the things we need to do is we need to shut off the breaker to this power source that brings us to death. And we need to only tap into the power which is Jesus Christ. So when that happens, we have this soul that is new, it's fresh, it's transformed, it's alive. And now, rather than re receiving my emotional state from death, I'm able to receive my emotional state from Jesus so my spirit is able to feed into my emotions and my emotions can change the, the way I respond and what I do. But so many Christians choose not to live in the resurrection power of Jesus. They say yes to Jesus, but they're still a slave to this faulty power source that goes in and out. It's not constant. This is what robs us of joy. Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. That means that joy cannot be produced in your bodies. But when we try to produce joy in our bodies, we become, well, the works of the flesh. There's lots of ways that it manifests. If you're, to, if you're trying to receive joy in your flesh, some people turn to 
addictions and drugs and medicines and toxic relationships and sexuality and all kinds of perverseness. No control in their life because they're always seeking that next thing that promises an elevated experience. And what that does is it begins to influence how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about others. And this just becomes this cycle that just leads to death. Now, you may say, well, I'm not an addict. Well, yeah, maybe not an addict that can't be controlled, but we're still not experiencing the joy of the Lord. You see, what happens is, is God wants to give us joy. He wants us to live in joy. Joy to the world, to all mankind. It's not just a verb, it's also a noun. It is a person in the person of the very Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And when you say yes to Him, the Spirit makes us alive. And we begin to live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and there is this cultivation of soil that comes alive. In the soil of the Spirit begins to birth joy. Joy then can begin to affect how we feel and affect what we do. But if you try to find joy in the circumstances of the world, you're settling for something far less than life. I don't care how it makes you feel in the moment. You'll always need more of it and more of it and more of it. And eventually, as much of it as you can get, and it still leads to death. Maybe slower, but to death. And if you're looking to have joy in your emotions, you just want to feel something. I talk to a lot of people who just want to feel something and they, they manufacture and they do all kinds of, of stuff to try to feel joyful. But you always need more things to be joyful. And it will never work. These things cannot produce joy. It's not possible because joy is a person. So when you have this fertile soil of the Spirit, this reverse-engineered power can come in, joy is produced here, overflows into your emotion, and overflows into your action. And it leads to life. Not only that, but just like the angel told the shepherds, there is this output as well. There is this, not only do you have the power that comes from joy, but you're also able to give it away. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, but it is for all mankind. So there is this joy output. Everywhere the shepherds went, they were telling people what they had heard, what they had seen, right? But I can tell you, whenever you draw off the power of the world, it comes into your, your physical body, goes over into your emotional state, that's what causes you to keep secrets. But when you're drawing off the life of Jesus Christ, you give that life away. I know, I know it's complicated, but it's really easy. Remember last week we talked about joy. Joy isn't found in a moment. Uh, faith looks back at the highs and lows of life and sees God's grace and mercy. When you can look back and your faith is built through difficult darkness, you can look forward and know how God, if you're in a dark place right now, you can look back and see how God has preserved you and you can have hope in the future. And, and when you're not worried about the past and you're not worried about the future, you're free to love right now. 
We're going to talk about that in just a few moments, but you're free to love. So when your hope is consistently settled and it becomes this new muscle memory and this idea of fear not, you know, this, these two, living in these two arenas alone will produce fear. But when the spirit steps in, it says fear not. And so now I don't have to live in fear anymore. And when hope is consistently settled and create this new spiritual muscle memory, the spirit begins to produce joy. Once joy is full, the spirit begins to produce peace. So remember, joy isn't found in a moment. It's built. Joy is, it is a fruit of the spirit, but the, but the, the rich soil that joy is birthed in is hope. It's hope. Joy is birthed out of hope. And hope is birthed out of darkness. But seeing the grace and goodness of God in the midst of, of struggle. See, joy is produced or built by choosing right things and focusing on right things. It's a gift that's produced by the Spirit based on hope that you continue to choose. You see, hope is a choice. Hope is what we intentionally have to think about our futures and Jesus Christ and what he's doing and that God is at work. As we continue to focus on that, joy is the proof of hope. It's a byproduct of living in the Spirit. You don't have to do anything you don't have to do anything to manufacture joy. In fact, you can't manufacture joy. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But the Spirit requires hope for it to be able to be produced in. Hope's on you. Hope is your cultivation. You see, joy is produced by the choices that you've made prior to needing joy. That's why when our circumstances demand desperation... Just think about the times in your life where you've kind of been shocked or, 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 or you're tempted to fear mega. We settle for quick outs, comforts, instead of trusting God and being patient. We want joy, but our spirits don't have, haven't produced the fertile soil for the spirit to work. We want peace, but we don't want to do the homework. You see, we want the fruit of the Spirit, but we don't want to live in the Spirit. We don't want to obey the Spirit. We don't want to do it. So, so when the world collapses, we, why don't I have joy? Well, you didn't do the work. The joy is a choice that you make before you need it. That's why he tells us that, that regardless of the circumstances we're in, we've got to be obedient to what Scripture teaches us. You can't wash in, in and out of obedience and expect to have the fruit of the Spirit. This is not God's fault. So joy is a choice, but it's also a verb. It's what we do based on who he is. Joy, the, the command to be joyful the, the, the command to see joy as a verb, even in the Old Testament, uh, isn't the command to feel something. It's the command to do something. But the being able to do it comes out of being able to feel it. But, but they work exactly together. So 
you know, I'm spending time in the hope of what God is, God is working, what God is doing in the resurrection. I'm hoping in the empowerment of Jesus Christ in my life and the spirit making all things new. I'm living in the hope of heaven and the eternal city, being able to live eternally with God and bringing other people with me. That's, that's what consumes my mind. When that is the consuming idea, we can live in hope. So feeling that way isn't manufactured. Feeling that way is a byproduct. And because I feel that way, it actually turns me more and more toward the face of Jesus. So it's this, it's this circle that just continues to, to close itself. It's, it's because of Jesus I feel, and because I feel, I see Jesus. And it just gets more and more powerful, more and more energized. It doesn't lose steam. It gains in power. So back to Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Throughout the Old Testament, they had been commanded, and I put together a bunch of proofs of that, but I'm going to bypass that. But they were, they were commanded to do joy. And the command is not feel it. The command is do it because you are so overwhelmed with hope of tomorrow. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the shepherds had always been commanded to rejoice. Again, it, command, it manifests in different ways. In fact, you know, primarily rejoicing isn't something that we're caught up in. It's proof of where our heart already is. So the shepherds were already commanded to produce rejoicing in their life, but the angel said, Great joy, mega joy, literally a joy I give to you. So here it is. This baby is the reason that you've been rejoicing for the last 2,000 years. This is the reason that your parents commanded you and their parents commanded them to rejoice in the Lord always. As Paul would eventually say. This is, this is, the, this, this is the reason. This baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, this gift from God that is lying in a manger, this is the reason that you have been rejoicing. I've always been fascinated by the fact that even though the, the wise men came from afar, suddenly show up in Jerusalem. And they're not theologians. I don't know what access they had to the Old Testament scriptures, but they're, they're not... They're not theologians. They're not Israelites. They knew where the baby was going to be born. They knew when the baby was going to be born. Bethlehem is simply five miles south of Jerusalem. As far as we know, the, the, the wise men showed up in Jerusalem. To the, to the kingdom, to the palace, to where the king is. And they said, hey, we've 
heard about, we've seen the star, we've heard about the, the Messiah being born, the King of the Jews being born, we'd like to see him too. And the theologians, the priests, the prophets, you know what their response was? I there's no proof in scripture that any of them said, really, we hadn't heard that. They heard it. They knew the scripture. They knew what the Old Testament prophecies were. No less than 93 prophecies that come to pass in Jesus' birth. And, and they go, nah. The people who knew it didn't care. The people who had been living in anticipation of it traveled a great distance to get there. You find that odd? That even the shepherds forsook the sheep to be able to go to see the baby when the angels, because they had been living in ex expectation, anticipation. It's funny to me that the people that were going to the synagogue every day wouldn't go to the manger. And the ones who didn't know about the synagogue had received the joyful news. This is super important. So for those of you who like numbers, you will love this. For those of you who don't, uh, just ask the person beside you when he's done, will you let, let me know, okay? Uh, so it's interesting to me how the wise men knew. You remember Daniel back, this was hundreds of years prior to Luke chapter two, but Daniel had been taken in captivity and, and, uh, and while they were in captivity in, in Babylon, uh, Daniel had been praying for years and years, Lord, how long are we going to be in captivity? How long is it? And he ends up getting that 70 years, you know. So, uh, but in all that prophecy, you go to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel writes that there's going to be 70 weeks. And that word weeks is it, it really in, in uh, Hebrew, it doesn't mean like a week. It's, a week means seven of these. And so uh, it's, just a, it's just a phrase. So when Daniel talks about uh, 70 weeks, it's 70 sevens, all right? So uh, the, the prophecy was that from the time that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, this is all in Daniel chapter nine, when, when the king of Babylon, Artaxerxes, uh, decrees that the, they're gonna rebuild Jerusalem, from that point forward, 400, well, 70 sevens, and then Daniel makes a statement. He says, well, except for one of those sevens will be a later time. So 69 sevens are going to take place prior to the king, the Messiah, and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so when the prophet's prophecy was given, uh, you know, Daniel was able to predict the dreams of the king. You remember the story? And all of the king's wise men came in. They didn't have a clue. And, and, and the king was like, you know what? Daniel gets to live. All of you other guys get to die. And Daniel said, no, 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 no. Don't kill them. And the king said, well, as a favor to you, Daniel, I'll let my wise men live. I think from every generation then on, every wise man loved wise man Daniel. So Daniel left the legacy of the prophecy in Babylon, which is where these wise men come from. They'd been studying this for 483 years, 63 years. So if you take the years from that moment when, when Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. 
decrees that you can go back and build Jerusalem and the Israelites left, the wise men that were left in Babylon said, oh, there's the countdown. And they started doing the math and they started watching and say, we have 460 years. The Messiah, the King of Kings, the one the Israelites are waiting, the one that Daniel told us about, the one that, in, that, that saved our life, they talked about is going to be it. But they also knew what the book of Numbers says. They know what the book of Leviticus says, that a man can't be a priest until he's 30 years old. So if Jesus is going to go in as the prophet into Jerusalem, he's got to be a minimum of 30 years old. So let's subtract 30 years. I'm, I'm trying to do the math very quickly for you, but I'm telling you within about a, about a five to six year span, they knew when Jesus, the son, of, the son of God, was going to be born. Babylon knew it. The wise men knew it. When you couple that with, well, where? Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says Bethlehem. It's pretty, pretty simple when you start seeing that. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not now. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. So when we see that star rising over Bethlehem, Within this five-year span of time, which, by the way, we all know our calendar's off by four to six years, the wise men knew where Jesus was going to be born. When they saw the star, it makes sense to go to the, to the chief of the Israelites and say, hey, we know you guys are as excited as we are. Can we see him too? Yeah. They were living in anticipation that their parents had taught them, that their grandparents had taught them, that their great-grandparents had taught them for almost 500 years. So when the wise men see Jesus, they bring gifts and leave in rejoicing. When the shepherds go and see Jesus, they leave praising God and glorifying him. But the people who knew the truth best hadn't been informed from their spirits. They actually were troubled greatly because now they're in competition. And I think there's a lot of people alive today who may know the truth, but your lives are living in competition to what God wants for you. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. You see how, how they, are, they move from rejoicing to seeing joy himself and back to rejoicing. Many times our, our walk with God is, is pretty fluid, pretty, pretty inconsistent. And, and, and honestly, this is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says that this is the will of God, your sanctification, because that's, that's the salvation of our minds. That's how our minds are made holy is this process of sanctification. It's the process of learning to live and dwell on the things of the Spirit. So we wash in and out. If we're not fixed on Jesus and except maybe on Sunday mornings when it's really easy to be joyful. But we're not fixed on Jesus on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, or when crisis falls, muscle memory tells us to depend upon the circumstance. And when we do that, we're not going to ever find joy. 
lest we get our way. Sometimes God won't let us have our way because he don't want us to be satisfied here. But this kind of, this kind of you know, we, we, we wash in and out of circumstances and inconveniences, and this kind of faith will never produce hope. And weak hope produces a circumstantial joy, and a circumstantial joy will never produce his peace in our life. And that's really what we want joy to do, is to produce peace. So he's bringing life and he's bringing transformation to everything that we give him. And, and we can live rejoicing because of our relationship with God. We don't have to go to the temple to rejoice. We don't have to go to the sacrifices to rejoice. We don't have to, to go through the processes of the law required to rejoice. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? We actually can live in a state of rejoicing as long as we're providing the fertile soil for the Spirit to produce it. John chapter 15. I begin reading in verse 1. I want you just to hear these words. I'm not going to make many comments about it, but I just want you to hear the context for a statement that Jesus makes. <clears throat> Jesus, the noun, joy. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So there's some branches he takes away entirely, but, but even branches that are producing get cut back. You know why they get cut back? Because when you're getting cut back, it produces faith in your life. That they may bear more fruit. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. You can't have the fruit of the Spirit unless you're drawing the life off of the vine, Jesus himself. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you're trying to live for God in the flesh, it will produce nothing but death and misery while you wait. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done. Listen, I want you to hear the whole verse there. If you abide in him and his words abide in you, you want what he wants. And when you want what he wants, pray for that and you'll get your way. This isn't a tell God what you want and he's obligated to do it. It's tell God what you want because you want what he wants. Verse eight, by my father, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Listen to this, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If you have faith, if you can see Jesus in your circumstances, not your circumstances, but if you can see God's grace and mercy in your circumstances, you can have hope. 
And when you live in hope, you are free to love. And when you live in love, your joy will be full. But all of these must be selfless. Joy can only be found in a spirit that remains alive in Jesus, alive by resurrection power of the Spirit of God, living in the resurrection power, already living in the kingdom of God, captured in the anticipation that God is at work and using all things to glorify himself and using us to accomplish that by loving and rejoicing. So I want to ask you, what are you anticipating? What is it that you're waiting for? Are you waiting for a better fill-in-the-blank? Are you looking for more whatever it may be so that you can feel better about your circumstances? What is it that captures your attention? What is the thing or things that you dream? What do you pay attention to? What do you want more of? What do you allow to get in your way? What do you allow to steal your joy? And see, the Holy Spirit, when you're you're tied into him, when you're spending time with him, cultivating a relationship with him, spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, living in the outflow, giving, giving the spirit away in your relationships, I'm, I, I feel, I can't, obviously would never speak for anyone else on this, but it seems to me that we live in an age where we want, we want to be able to pray and have God turn on the joy switch. I want to feel joy. So Lord, just give me joy. Well, but so, so when you're troubleshooting your life and you're wondering, why don't I have joy? Why don't I have a joy? And the, the first thing you think of is, well, God's, God doesn't want me to be joyful. He does want us to be joyful. Here's the formula. So you can just backtrack and see where you got off and say, oh, I forgot. I want what he wants, not my what, what I want, which is what Jesus prays when he is filled with trouble in the garden. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. That's, that's, what, that's where joy comes from. That's why Hebrews chapter 2, it says, for the joy set before him. After he prays, not my will, but yours be done. Joy isn't found by living in the here and now. Joy is found by giving the Spirit permission to cause me to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus in every moment, in every room, in every person. It's not dealing with people as if they're flesh and blood. It's recognizing that Jesus is doing something in this moment. When I walk into every room, what what is Jesus doing in this moment? What is Jesus doing in me? Every circumstance, what does Jesus desire of me? How can I manifest Jesus? How can I see him and reveal him? That is the secret to joy, living this way. So what causes you to take your eyes off Jesus? That's where you'll find selfishness. What is it that causes you to take your eyes off of him? Maybe you haven't cultivated a desire to want what he wants. I get that. There's a lot of Christians who want heaven, but they don't want Jesus. I get it. I really do get it. But I'm telling you what, when you learn to fall in love with Jesus, you'll learn to know that what he wants is best. And that's where hope lives. 
The Spirit gives us the eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. But if you're trying to find joy and not, and, and, and not have your eyes empowered by the Spirit, your eyes, can, you'll ne- your eyes will never see Jesus. Your eyes are transformed by transformed emotions, which are transformed by a resurrected spirit. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Rejoice in the Lord. How do you rejoice in the Lord if you're not captivated by him? How can you respond to joy himself? How can you respond if you're not captivated by him? How do you rejoice in the Lord if you're not seeing things about the Lord that causes joy to rise up in your heart? That's what happens is when your eyes, watch this, when your spiritual eyes see Jesus at work in your life, what happens is your eyes draw, draw that in and it becomes empowered all the way back to the spirit which is being produced joy. It's like this, it's like Jesus is just drawing joy through us, every part of us. You know, and I already drew some attention to it a moment ago, but in, in, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8, you don't have to turn there, but you can mark it down and, and check it. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 8, it says that these are the disciples have gone to the tomb and they've seen Jesus. And it says when they, he's resurrected and they're, they, they're, they're kind of, I mean, this isn't something that happens all the time. They've been walking with him for a while now, several years, but <clears throat> this isn't the expectation that they had. But it says that they were filled with fear and great joy. So let's go back over to Luke chapter 2, verse 9. When the angels show up before the birth of Jesus, before they knew who Jesus was, it says they were filled with mega fear. After the resurrection, they have fear because they know who God is, but they have great joy because they know the resurrected Jesus. From mega fear to mega joy, the life of Jesus, joy himself. And I hope that this season we'll, be, we'll learn to start doing the work to learn to be able to see Jesus in every circumstance. But it can only happen when we're tied in to the resurrected spirit. And some of us in here today may have never received Christ as our Savior. What that means is you're limited to only being able to see death. Even You can call it life if you want, but it will always produce death in your life. And then for eternity, we, you need the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The resurrection isn't something that only Jesus experienced or something that we're waiting on. Our spirits are already alive in Christ. If you've not experienced that, I beg you today. If you're trying to find joy in every other way, it's a trap. It's not possible to be found apart from Jesus. And you're a Christian here this morning, but you, but you just are not living in anticipated joy, I beg you, I'm telling you, the reason for that is you're not spending time with joy. Let's pray together. Will you stand with me? Lord, I pray that we would be able to go back in time and reevaluate every circumstance and be able to see your work, to be able to see you involved, to be able to see what you are doing so that we can learn how to trust you and have our faith built.
to be able to see then with anticipation that no matter what we're going through, we can have joy, and no matter what people that we love are going through, we can give joy. So, Lord, I pray that this good news that to us the Savior has been born would be for all people. This joy would be for all people. Lord, I pray that it would begin with your people. We get caught just going through the motions. We get caught just being theologians. Sometimes we miss joy. So I pray that today you would just remind us. Lord, I pray that you'd give, this, give us this settled confidence in you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for joy. We thank you that you produce yourself in us. And we pray that you would use us to replicate yourself in others. That everywhere we go, Lord, we would do joy and we would be joy. We would glorify you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we sing this morning, I want to just I want to remind you of the question. What is it in your life that you allow to mask your ability to see Jesus in any moment? What what form of selfishness or pride or competition are you in? You know, I mean, maybe this morning we need to just pray, Lord, I want help help me want what you want. I'm telling you. There's one reason why I know this. You will never want what God wants until you love him. You will always see him as a competitor. You want his things, but you may not want him if you don't love him. And you can't love someone that you're not around. You gotta learn to love Jesus. You gotta learn to trust Jesus. You gotta spend time with him. this morning if maybe you've seen some deficiencies or some lack of intentionality today I beg you won't you won't you just just say to the Lord Lord help help me live in your spirit if you're not a Christian this morning you can't so I would beg you today if, you, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus I want to pray with you today I want I want you to I want you to begin walking with him I want I want your, your, your mind and your emotion, and I want your, your bodies to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. So it's powerless without it. So today, I just want us to, I want us just to reset. I want us just to say, all right, now I know. And so we all want joy. We certainly all want peace. Man, now I know the formula. You may not like it, but we gotta abide in the vine that our joy may be full. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your peace that's available. Thank you for the joy. Lord, I pray for the joy that was set before you. You endured the cross 
And we know that it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And so as we walk in the strength of your joy, we know that it comes with selfless surrender to ourself. And I just pray, Lord, today that you would remind us of why we live. Remind us of the power that we have that comes from you. The power that we have to give. And I pray that you would use us for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.